Full confession, I don't know what the announcements are today. I know, but we have some, so I'm just going to go ahead and turn around and read to you. Oh, you guys, so we have been hoping for this for a long time. Prior to COVID and shutting everything down, we had a hopping baby's room next door, and um, we just haven't had the volunteers that we needed to run that. And this morning, we got to launch the opening of that room, and we are really excited about that. Um, We are doing a slow on-ramp on, and so if you have little ones or you have friends with little ones, and you know, gosh, we haven't really been coming to church because we don't want to wrestle an infant during the church service. That's not really filling my soul. Um, I don't know why that would be. If you have a child that is zero to two years old, that space is available. We're doing it uniquely because it's summertime and a lot of people are coming and going, and it is by RSVP. And so what you do is you go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash babies, and it'll just kind of send you to an event page where you can sign up for all the Sundays that you're hoping to have childcare for. And we ask that you do that by noon on Saturday so that we can let our volunteer team know who's going to be there. And we don't have too many babies in there. So we don't know how many of you actually want to use this. We've heard back from about five of you. We have capacity for four or five kids. So if everyone we think all come at the same time, we should be good to go. Um, But we will communicate with you. And so just remember, we'd love for you to RSVP. Something happens, you forgot, whatever, we'll try and make accommodations for you, but it's quite likely that there wouldn't be a volunteer available for your little. So, brookviewchurch.com forward slash babies. And for those of you watching online, while your baby's napping, come on down. They can nap in the arms of capable volunteers. Um, So with that in mind, that purple room that's next door is no longer available for you to care for your child if you choose not to have them in care. So we do have the cry room back there um, in the lobby, and that has the the live feed, so you can watch the church service in there, because don't be having your babies yelling while I'm talking, because I can't focus. I mean, how do you feel about that, Jason? You're fine. You do better than me. I'm way more gracious than you. Yeah, yeah. If I was speaking and there was a baby, I'm like, what, what's what? What do you need, honey? Okay, moving along, my next announcement is summer soccer. We're in full swing, more than full swing. In fact, we're a little desperate. Here's the deal. We have 170 kids signed up. We had to close registration. We currently have 12 kids on a wait list, hoping to be able to come, and we would so love for them to come. In addition to the reality that we closed at 170 because someone must have shared a link on a Sunday afternoon before I watched the RSVPs come in last Monday and I was like, why did we get 25 kids on Monday? And I was like, whoa, close it, close it, close it because we don't actually even have the volunteer staff that we need for the 170 that are signed up. Um, And so I am just begging you We want kids to come. We want them to have a great experience. Um, You do not need to know anything about soccer. If you know someone who, like, is good with kids, they care about kids, and they don't necessarily go to Brookview, 
Would you invite them to come? We'll, we'll get them on our page. We'll set them up well. We have a training that happens July 30th, um, and we give you pretty much a script of everything that you will need to, to do to make soccer club successful as a coach and assistant coach. And then we also have student helpers on the field. And so I, I wish that I could tell you, you can do it. You can, I know nothing about soccer except that I've started running around on a soccer field and trying to play, but I don't actually know. In fact, I did a throw in on Friday night and the um, ref comes over and he's like, make sure you keep two feet on the ground. I didn't even know that was a rule. I was just like, I, I have to throw this in. I'm terrified. So I know nothing about soccer, but I know kids and I love kids. And if you can look them in the eye and support them, be like, you got this. You're playing games and scrimmages with them. So please, 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 if you think you might be able to help, even if you can only be there for a couple of days, we will take you. We will take anyone and everyone, but you have to be nice to kids or I'll kick you out. <laughs> so that's just like the, the you know grace entering in. I named my second daughter middle name Grace because I was hoping she would be better than me. Um, <laughs> So if you're interested in anything that we've talked about, um, soccer club, you want to help out in the baby's room, we're still needing two more volunteers in there um, to make it a full rotation because I do not want volunteers serving for more than you go one week on, five weeks off. I love it when it's one week off, seven weeks off, but on seven weeks. Move along, Jen. Fill out your Connect card. That's on your chair. For those of you that are watching online, that's at brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact. Um, and you put those cards in the basket on your way out this morning. I'm out. Okay, you guys, imagine the scene with me. Jesus and his disciples are invited to a wedding. Many of you know the story. It's the early days of his ministry, and he's been teaching about the kingdom of God, and he's gathered a few followers, and now he and his small crew of followers are at this wedding. And his mom happens to be there as well. And so many of you know what unfolds, right? The host gets news from the wait staff that the wine has run out, and Mary overhears and says, no problem. My son will take care of it. Do whatever he says. And then there's this awkward exchange between mother and son, and she nods at Jesus like, fix this. And Jesus is like, Mom, it's not my time yet. And Mary doesn't even respond to Jesus. She's like, ignores that. She looks at the staff and says, do whatever he says. 
So Jesus points to these six huge stone jars that are more like cisterns. And Jesus says to the wait staff, go and fill those six jars with water. Now each of those six uh, containers held between 20 and 30 gallons each. So that's like 120 to 180, right, Kate? I'm checking my math. 120 to 180 gallons, gallons in all, okay? And the wait staff is like, wait, why? Then they're, they're like, well, this, this woman has a lot of confidence in her adult son, so I guess we'll do it. And then there's no like, there's no like hand waving. There's no like prayer over the water. He doesn't even like wink at it or anything. He just looks at the staff and he says, great, now draw some out. And they do. And their eyes brighten and it is the best wine they've ever tasted. The guests are so amazed that they, they even say things like, you know, most people serve, serve the best wine first, and then when, when people, people are already, you know, three sheets to the wind, that's when they break out the cheap, crappy stuff. But you, right, to the host, and you can just sort of feel him puffing up, they're like, but you have saved the best for last. And he's like, yes, I have. Nobody parties like me. You guys, this is a great miracle for several reasons. First of all, it's so ordinary and mundane. Like this is, this is, in the greater scheme of life, this is kind of a trivial problem, really. I mean, they ran out of wine. It's, it's not like a healing. It's not like no one's dying. There's no suffering from leprosy or blindness or, or you know, chronic pain. But the essence of this miracle is transformation. Jesus takes what's very ordinary and common, water, and he turns it into something extraordinary, the world's finest wine. And this is a preview into what Jesus would then do all through the Gospel of John, all through history up until now. Take very common people, like the disciples and like you and me, like tempted, weak, ordinary, common and turn us into spirit-filled agents of the kingdom. You guys, that is, that is crazy when you think about it. God picks people like you and me to bring about healing and restoration in the world that he loves. Like the renewal of hearts, the renewal of systems of injustice, the re renewal of families and, and towns and cities and the whole world. Okay, now think about this. If you had complete access to Jesus' transforming power, if Jesus said to you, I can transform anything in your life right now, what would you ask Jesus to touch and transform? Like, think about your life. Maybe there's a relationship. Maybe there's, maybe there's a negative habit where you're like, Jesus, if you, if you would just touch this and miraculously transform it, that would be awesome awesome. And maybe your spouse or your roommates or the people close to you in your life are like, yes, we would love for you to fix that. <laughs> maybe it's a negative way of thinking, right, or acting that you're just like, okay, Jesus, I would love to be free from this. Now, I have heard of that kind of thing happening on occasion. Sometimes Jesus transforms like boom, like instantaneously. 
I've heard a few stories of that, and maybe your life or some aspect of your life is one of those. Maybe you were like addicted to alcohol or drugs or whatever, and you just, you like cried out to Jesus, and immediately the craving was gone. Okay, that does happen. But it's not the way, it's not the usual way, is it? I mean, sometimes Jesus transforms like instantaneously, just boom, in a moment. But more often for most of us, he transforms us over time. But how? How does transformation actually happen? Like, can we actually become new? Can we become different? Okay, hold on to that. We'll come back to that. This is the last week of this series called I Am where we're looking at the seven I am statements from Jesus in the Gospel of John. And Jesus was playing off of very familiar language to his audience. Because when Moses encountered God in a burning bush, he asked God, what is your name? And God responded, I am who I am. Okay, in other words, Yahweh. I am who I am. So here comes Jesus who says, I am, identifying himself with Yahweh. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then up for today, the very last one, I am the vine. Just as Jesus transformed water into wine, he promises to transform us. How does it work? How does he do it? Well, we're going to see a picture in John 15, which is a part of the conversation Jesus had with his disciples during the Last Supper. So earlier, prior to this, Jesus has washed the feet of his disciples, illustrating how they are to humble themselves and learn to serve one another in love. And he's redefined the millennia-old Passover meal into something new, which is extraordinary when you think about it. For Jewish people, they've been doing this for over a thousand years. And here comes Jesus one day, and he says, oh yeah, from here forward, this wine is my blood shed for you. And this bread is my body broken for you. He's had the conversation that we looked at last week in John 14 saying, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. You cannot come now, but we'll come later. And I will come back and get you so that you can be with me in my father's house. You know the way to the father's house. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Then Jesus promises that he will send the Holy Spirit to guide his disciples. And next, Jesus paints a picture of how transformation happens. Okay, here we go. This is John 15, starting in verse 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
Now remain in my love. So Jesus says the key to transformation is to remain in him, or some translations say abide in him. And he compares it to the process of growing grapes. You guys can't see that very well with the lights on. There we go. So Jesus says that we're like the branches, and he's the vine. Okay, the vine of a grape bush is like the trunk of a tree. So he could have said, I'm the trunk, and you're the branches. But it wouldn't have sounded as poetic and awesome. (laughs) And trees don't produce grapes that make wine, so let's face it, trees are not as cool as grapevines. (laughs) But we all get the idea. Okay, the vine is the part rooted in the ground. It gets its nourishment and strength from the soil, and it runs vertical. And then the branches flow out of it like from the top like a T, okay? And so they receive what they need from the vine. They're smaller and weaker, and the fruit hangs on them. So Jesus adds another dimension to this image, and he says that the Father is the gardener, and he constantly prunes us to make us stronger, more fruitful. Jesus says that the Father cuts off every branch that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or reshapes to make it even more fruitful. So he cuts out stuff that doesn't produce fruit, and he reshapes the stuff that does produce fruit so that it produces even more. So here's the thing about grapevines. They can grow like wildly, aggressively. But a skilled gardener knows how to prune it back, like removing excess growth so that it can concentrate its energy in the right places. Um, N.T. Wright is a theologian. He's not a gardener, but he's a theologian. But he kind of explains the process from his experience. He says, I don't know much about gardening, but I can prune roses. Someone told me how when I was young, and I've never forgotten. In fact... I not only know how to do it, I even know why. Well, more or less. See, a rose bush, similar to a grapevine, left to itself will get straggly and tangled and grow in on itself. It will produce quite a lot of not-so-good roses rather than a smaller number of splendid ones. It will quite literally get in its own light. It needs help to grow in the right directions and to the right ends. So you prune it to stop wasting its energy and being unproductive. You cut out particularly the parts of the plant that are growing inwards and getting tangled up. I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener, Jesus says. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So the Father has already begun pruning the disciples, Jesus says. Jesus has begun teaching them, and they are being reshaped. They will eventually become even more fruitful than they've already been. But he reminds them of the key to real transformation. It says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So this this whole process of remaining in the vine and being pruned 
It's all connected to, to the concept of, of transformation called discipleship. So what is discipleship? Like, what does it mean to be a disciple? The word discipleship means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, depending on your church background, right, and where you grew up. For some, it means like one-on-one mentoring by an older, wiser, more experienced follower of Jesus to one or two or three younger, not as mature followers of Jesus. For others, they envision a kind of like leadership development culture where it's raising up and releasing the next generation of Christian leaders. For others, it's all about Bible study, right? It's all about learning theology and doctrine. Now, you guys, those are all great things, and I am behind all of them, like 100%. But I'm hesitant to call any of those three things discipleship. They all might play a role to a degree, but none of those things fully encompass what discipleship is. The truth is, being a disciple is more about our heart posture than about a specific program of some kind. Okay, it is not primarily a program that you participate in. It's, it's who you are. The Greek word that's translated as disciple is mathetes, and it can also be translated, like can be translated disciple or student or pupil or follower. Now, we've talked about this before, but a number of Greek scholars now argue that the best word we have in the English language is apprentice, right? Because, okay, so think about this. An, an electrical apprentice spends his days with a skilled electrician in order to learn from the electrician how to do electrical work, right? He watches, asks questions, learns, does a little bit, then does a little bit more, and then he goes and he takes his electrical test and he slays it so that everybody in the office is like, dang, dude, you slayed it. And then the guy becomes like a legit electrician with his own disciples of electricians that he's teaching hypothetically. So all of this kind of thing happens in, in a lot of different fields, right? So in the, in the world, a disciple is an apprentice of a rabbi learning to become like the rabbi, watching, learning, asking questions, trying a little, and then one day becoming a full-fledged rabbi with their own disciples. Now, historically, Jesus did not invent the concept of this, discipleship. I mean, sometimes we talk about discipleship like apart from its original context. Discipleship was actually started long before Jesus and long before the first century. It began centuries earlier in Greece with philosophers like Socrates. And then it spread across the Mediterranean to the Jewish rabbis, and it became the mode of the most elite education that you could get. So if you were in Greece and you became a disciple of Plato or Aristotle, That was like the most elite education you could ever hope to get. And it became the same in Israel with the Jewish rabbis. So in Israel, the most elite students would apply to apprentice under some prestigious rabbi, and only the very best of the very best of the very best made the cut. Which is why Jesus' invitation to everybody was just so radical. Like, if anyone would come after me, follow me, and become my disciple, anyone, right? 
there were many disciples outside of just the 12 because this whole thing was open to anybody. Whosoever may come and be my disciple. And that was unprecedented. Jesus was the first on historical record to include women. Like no other rabbi in his era is on record having female disciples. But Jesus welcomed tons of them. I mean, there's Mary and, and Martha and Mary Magdalene and, and many other women. And that was, that was groundbreaking. And for us, yeah, Glenda. <laughs> you know it, girl. So for us, as, we, as, we, as followers of Jesus, okay, our goal really then is the same as a first century mathetes. And in the end, true discipleship, if you boil it down, is about three things. And I, I love this explanation, simple explanation of what it is. Okay, this is our goal as, apprentice, to, as an apprentice of Jesus. Number one, to learn to be with Jesus, to follow him around and learn to spend time in his presence and love. Number two, to become like Jesus, to let Jesus' teaching and life and spirit and way transform us from the inside and then begin to spill out of us. And then third is to do what Jesus did, or maybe better language, to do what Jesus would do if he were us. So if you were a first century apprentice under a rabbi, you were literally training to become a rabbi one day yourself, much like an electrician's apprentice is training to be an electrician. So you looked forward to the day when your rabbi might turn to you and say, okay, kid, I think you have what it takes. I think you're ready. Go and make disciples. So in the same way, we're training under Jesus to do the kinds of things he did, but we're, we're to do them in our own life, in our own way, in our own context. We are to figure out what would Jesus do if he were me? It's the old bracelet, right? What would Jesus do if he were a single parent? What would Jesus do if he were in your shoes? What would Jesus do if he were a young mother or a grandma? What would Jesus do if he were a business owner? or a CEO, or a manager? What would Jesus do if he was a middle or high school student? What would Jesus do if he was the pastor of a church in Briar? You know, like, this is what, what would Jesus do if he were me? If he had my, my gifting, and he had my circumstances, and my situation. When we do that, when we figure out what that is, and we do that, whatever that is, that's fruit. So to remain in Jesus, and get pruned, reshaped by the Father, and produce fruit. This, this is the essence of discipleship. It is learning to be with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus would do if he were us. And this, this apprenticeship to Jesus is a lifelong process, something that only happens, he says, if we remain in him. What does that mean, though? Paul writes about this in, in Romans 12, and we looked at this several months ago. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Okay, it's not about bringing, bringing animals to the temple anymore. You offer your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, Paul says. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So the word translated both conformed 
and transformed is the same Greek word, okay? It's metamorpho, and we looked at this a while back. Some of you are like, yeah, we, j- we just talked about this a few months ago. So it's where we get the English word metamorphosis. So, okay, think of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. That's metamorpho, and it's formed, okay, conformed, transformed. That's transformation. So we have the same DNA, we're the same people, but somehow we become something new. This really is possible. And Paul says formation is happening to us all the time. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're intentional or not, whether you're trying to follow Jesus or not, we're all formed by something every minute of every day. The question is not, are you being formed? It's who or what are you being formed into? So the question is not, are you a disciple? It's who or what are you a disciple of? You know, are you a disciple of a 24-year-old influencer? Like, right, YouTube. Hey, guys. <laughs> you know, like for Paul, human beings are not, we're not static. We are dynamic. We are always changing. So whoever you are in this moment is not who you will be next week. We're continually being formed by something. So what we see on Instagram or the shows we watch on TV or the other mommies we hang out with or the guys we go golfing with or our news source or the music we listen to, we are being formed by all of it. And Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. There is a pattern in this world. Do not be conformed. Instead, be transformed. So all Christian spiritual formation, or you could say discipleship, is counterformation. It's counter-discipleship because the world all around us is trying to form us into its mold. Right? The task of discipleship to Jesus is to push back in the opposite direction. So we remain in Jesus and let Jesus remain in us, sharing his life with us. And then the Father cuts out the parts of us that don't produce fruit and the parts that, the parts that are getting in the way, the parts that waste energy and resources. He cuts the dead stuff out of us and then he prunes back or he reshapes the fruitful stuff to make it even more fruitful. And this is beautiful, isn't it? And this is just another picture of discipleship or apprenticeship. It's being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what he would do if he were us. But the million-dollar question is, how do we engage in this? Jesus promises it is actually possible for each of us to become something new and something beautiful. But how? And it is so easy to make this into something so mysterious, so lofty and spiritual and otherworldly that we feel like it's beyond reach. But this process is much earthier than many people realize. So to explain it, you guys, I'm going to share some stuff that I have shared before. And these concepts, I think, are just critical when it comes to transformation. And because I don't know, I cannot think of, I've racked my brain for a couple weeks trying to think of a better way to explain this to you that I haven't already used before. And I was like, forget it. (laughs) I want this, this is important. And I want it to be as good as it can be. So if you're sitting here and you've already heard me teach on this, just reapply it to your current life season because it's still a big deal. It's still really important. And also try to look attentive and gracious. (laughs) 
Because I'll tell you what Jesus would do if he were you. Okay, let me give you some principles for how formation happens. And these principles are not exhaustive. Okay, this is not even close to all that could be said. But these are extremely helpful to factor into the equation because we are all being formed every moment. So here are some things that lead to just what what we would call unintentional formation. Meaning these things are at work on you whether you want them to be or not whether you're aware of them or not. You don't have to be strategic or plan or organize your life around them. These things are just always at work forming you. Okay, let me give you six. Number one, the stories we believe. So we all have stories or narratives in our mind that we live by. Neurobiologists tell us that our our brain is actually wired for story. We automatically take all the complex data of the world and place it into some kind of narrative that gives meaning and purpose, that gives us a sense of direction to live by. So just one example, human sexuality. How How do humans flourish sexually? This is the great running debate of our age, isn't it? And and the answer to that, it depends. I mean, if you believe that all of life on earth is, is one big cosmic accident, then monogamy is nothing more than a social construct, and sex is no more than some kind of biological release, and it serves no purpose beyond pleasure and the propagation of our species. How exciting is that? But if you believe that it's, that it's, that it's created and designed intentionally, if you believe that it's created and designed to be an intimacy-based wonder, well, then that will give shape to what you do with your body. And the story you live in will be the story you live out. Um, psychologists use the language of mental maps, and so you can think of it like this. Most of us know how to get from our house to church. How many of you can do that without navigation system? This is a sharp group. So, I mean, you should puff up, but we don't have to use Waze or whatever. We have a mental map. And most of us have mental maps for how we get to all kinds of places, to the grocery store, to our favorite coffee shop, to park that we like, whatever. Um, In the same way, we have mental maps for navigating all of life. We have mental maps for how to navigate sexuality, relationships, marriage, parenting. We have mental maps for nutrition. This is the best way to do nutrition or finances. For religion, we have mental maps for life after death. And if our mental maps are true, meaning if they correspond to reality, then when we follow those mental maps, we show up to reality in such a way that we can thrive. Just like if I, if I have the wrong mental map for, for how to get from home to church, I could, I could end up totally lost, and you guys would be sitting here in silence. <laughs> and I would be driving around Snohomish County. I have a message. <laughs> and there's no audience, right? So, so if my mental map is true, right, if it matches reality, then I can, like, show up to our church here, and I can see you guys. Or if my mental map is true, I can show up to my marriage well. If I have a good mental map of how marriage works, I can show up to marriage well. Or I can show up to parenting well. Or I can show up to friendship well. 
If my map is true, I, I show up to managing finances well and sexuality well and on and on. But if my mental maps are off, if they do not correspond to reality, if they're untrue, or worse, if they're lies, Jesus called the enemy the father of lies, then I show up to reality in such a way that I'm at odds with reality. And so I suffer the pain of those lies. Now all of this to say, our mental maps, they like really matter. We all live from narratives. We all live from stories of what it means to be human and how it works. We live from stories about how to find happiness. And so much of our behavior flows directly out of the stories that we believe. Okay, but that's not all. We're also formed by our habits. All sorts of work has been done over the last few decades in the field of psychology just to point out the power of habit. And in some ways, we are, we, we are simply the cumulative effect of our habits. So our habits impact our, our values and our desires. They impact who we are. Um, for example, Jen has discovered, she was the lady up here giving announcements for those of you that are visiting. And by the way, she's such a sweet woman, isn't she? And today she, ha- she was a little feisty. In the olden days, before I was as refined as a husband as I am now, I used to call her the goose. Because you, you know the thing about geese? They look all cute and pretty and just soft, right? And then you get up next to a goose, and what does it do? Goes, yeah, yeah, like that. So, Okay, so, so Jen... Don't tell her I said that. We'll keep that a secret. I'm sure you guys will never mention that. <laughs> Jen has discovered something about herself. It, um, she has discovered that if she spends too much time at the mall, shopping or just being there, it births some stuff in her. Scarcity, right, and inadequacy, and, and a critical spirit, right? So time at the mall does not form her into her best self. She starts to feel not pretty enough, not cool enough, like all of her clothes suck, and she starts to feel like her hair isn't cute enough and her nails aren't cute enough, and then at the same time, she's judging all the superficial people who spend so much time at the mall and clearly care about all this superficial stuff. So she has determined that hanging out at the mall actually deforms her. It malforms her. So the more time she spends at malls, the less she looks like Jesus. So she avoids the mall. And as her husband, I fully support her. (laughs) Because we think there's so many things that that we think of in this world as really neutral. But our our habits are never neutral. They're always forming us. And you think about things like social media or your news source or prayer or coffee with a friend or going to the mall. We are all formed by our habits for good or for not so good. Number three, our relationships. You, you don't need a PhD in psychology to figure out that we, we tend to become like the people that we spend time with on a regular basis, right? Eventually, we, we talk like them, we act like them, we think like them, we make judgments like them. Eventually, often, we vote like them. And this can be a really good thing or a really bad thing, depending on the people. We are being formed. The question is not, are we being formed? The question is, how are we being formed by the people in our life? Number four, our environment. 
Our culture wants you to become a certain type of person. So think about advertising and politics and the, like the intellectual and moral agenda. Our culture, or what the New Testament calls the world, it is a formation machine. And because of the rapid rise of technology and, the incre- and like our increasing reliance on it, most of us are living in two places at once, right? In the real world and face-to-face interactions and then in the digital world. This place where tribes and ideologies are just running rampant. We're receiving this steady stream of values that are good or bad, information that is true or untrue, stories to build our lives upon, some based on reality, some not so much. And all of this stuff, all of this stuff conspires to form us, number five, over time. And that's why so often it's hard to detect. Like you don't even feel it happening. But you wake up one day and you realize that you're saying and you're thinking and you're doing and acting in ways that maybe five years ago were unthinkable. And that can be a really good thing or a really bad thing, depending on who you're becoming. Okay, one more factor. We're shaped, number six, through experiences. So you get married or divorced or you have your first child or you become an empty nester or you, you lose your job or you lose a loved one or a dream dies. So whether the experience is negative or positive, experiences form us. Okay, now, now here's my point in all of this. All of this, okay, all of this has a cumulative effect on us and all you have to do in order for it to affect you, is to wake up in the morning and do life. You don't have to make a plan. All you have to do is live. So the question that wise followers of Jesus have asked for 2,000 years is this. How can we harness these factors to become more like Christ? Can we use this stuff to remain in Christ so that we can come to bear more fruit? Can we use this stuff to propel us in our discipleship? How can we allow what influences us to index us toward Jesus? Is there a way to experience intentional formation? So let's think about this. First, if we're deeply shaped by the stories we believe, then it will be really important and vital to to trust the right stories. And one of the primary ways that this this happens is through teaching, okay, which comes to us in many forms. But the best kind of teaching does more than just tell us, like, right from wrong, do this, don't do that. Good teaching gets into our head with a vision of the good life, and it undermines other stories that our culture is putting on display for us. It says, you know, that's actually not true. That's a lie. This is the truth. And there's a resonance to that in our spirit. And it's aimed at our mind, but it gets into our imagination and it gets all the way down into our heart. And this kind of teaching comes in all shapes and sizes, right? It's, hopefully, it's what I'm doing right now. It's a sermon at church, but it's also reading the Bible. It's also a discussion in a life group or ID group or, or over coffee with a friend. It could be reading a book or listening to a podcast. Teaching comes to us in many forms, and it plays a vital role. And it's not just knowing facts from fiction or right from wrong. It empowers us to begin living our lives from the lens of a completely different story. Okay, then number two, spiritual disciplines. So 
If habits are a big deal, then we need practices from the life of Jesus that habituate the truth into us. Habits that take the mental maps of Jesus into our daily life. If our habits are always forming us, then let's, let's use our habits to be formed toward Jesus, right? Things like prayer and reading scripture and listening to worship music and gathering with other Christ followers in living rooms weekly and coming to church to worship and learning and serving together and taking communion together to remember God's love, love for us in Christ. These practices get into our heart and they shape our thoughts. And they shape our feelings and our values and our desires. And over time, we increase our capacity for all kinds of things. We increase our capacity for all kinds of things. So a lot of people think of like living the way of Jesus. It's just all about effort. It's like you go to church, you get fired up, and then you come out of there and you are on fire for Jesus. And you, you just go out of there and you, you, you try really hard. There's no doubt that following Jesus takes effort, but it takes, it takes so much more than effort. It's as, much about, um, it's, it's as much about training hard as it is trying hard. And in 1 Timothy, Paul says, train yourselves to be godly. And Paul uses the image of athletic training in our process of spiritual formation. And so you think about something as hard as running a marathon. Anybody ever run a marathon in here? Wow, you guys, you're impressive. I have never run a marathon, and I am never, ever going to. <laughs> but the people that I have known that run marathons, here's what I know about them. They train. They, like, train strategically over a long period of time, and they train pretty hard. Because if you, if you want to run a marathon, um, here's, I mean, this is just my, no, you know, this is a novice, but here's some basic advice. You don't just wake up in the morning on the day of the marathon, and then like listen to an inspirational TED Talk, pound a few Red Bulls, and get all jacked up and try really, really hard to run 26.2 miles. No, you, you wake up many, many months before and you start training and you run several times a week, gradually increasing in distance. And, and here's the magic in it. For most people, I mean, most people, if, if they train hard, here's what happens. Over a period of time, you become the kind of person for whom running 26.2 miles is hard and takes great effort, but it is actually well within your capacity as a human being to do it. Training is how we increase our capacity. So if you look at your life and you go, I, I need to get past anxiety, or I need to get past anger, or fear, or hatred, or lust, or whatever. Yes, it will take trying hard, but it's probably also going to take training hard. Regular habits or practices that form and strengthen you. And if you train hard and you train well and you train long enough, one day you will be able to do what is currently beyond your capacity. Okay, number three, community. If we become like who we hang out with, then to become like Jesus, we need to band together with other people trying to become like Jesus. This little alternative society where we adopt new values, where we, where we live from different stories, and where we index one another toward God. And this can include like teaching, of course, like we can sit down with other people who follow Jesus and teach each other. 
But in real community, there's something really important and much less direct that is, that's always going on. When you live in real community and you're like doing life together, you're watching each other live and you're learning from one another. In community, we, we see the way of Jesus lived out in real, everyday, actual, down-to-earth, in-the-trenches life, and we pick up on how other people do it. We watch the way more mature followers of Christ handle conflict. We watch how more mature followers of Christ, people with more experience, do parenting. We watch the way they navigate suffering and disappointment and loss in their life. We watch how they do finances and marriage right, and recreation. So in community, we, we learn to pray and to read and understand and apply scripture, but we also, we also just learn how to do life alongside of those who are already doing it that are a little farther down the road than us. Or maybe they have a strength in an area where we don't have that same strength. It's huge. But guys, we are not intended to follow Jesus alone. We're intended to follow Jesus inside a spiritual family with brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. And some of the most important things in life are caught much better than they are taught. So we, we watch and we learn. Okay, number four, the Holy Spirit. Since we're always shaped by our environment, we desire to come to a place where, like, the Holy Spirit is our environment. And that sounds like, woo. But we want to come to a place where we, like, eat and sleep and breathe his presence, where we become attentive to his leading and his prompting. And we allow him to just affirm God's love for us again and again in our spirit. We want to come to a place where the, the Holy Spirit is, is, is as real to us as, as our city, right? as our phone, as what's happening on social media. And much of our ability to do this comes as we receive teaching and as we engage in disciplines like prayer and scripture and worship and as we live in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ, showing us the way. And I'll tell you what, when it comes to the Holy Spirit being my environment, I'm nowhere close to where I want to be. But I am growing and experiencing this more and more all the time. It comes as I learn to live from different stories. It comes as I, as I engage in regular spiritual disciplines. It comes through life in spiritual family. Okay, and, and it happens more and more, number five, over time. You just don't become like Jesus in an afternoon or one weekend retreat, as awesome as that retreat might be. There's no killer app for this, right? It, it is a lifelong process. You have to stay with it. You have to show up day after day after day and then allow God to do that work in you over a lifetime. As Eugene Peterson once uh, said one time about maturity or about life with Jesus, he said, it's a long obedience in the same direction. It takes time. And then one more, we're shaped by experiences, but there is one that shapes us like nothing else. Number six, suffering. We're shaped by our experiences, but if we allow, if we follow Jesus, if we really follow Jesus, there is no experience that forms us like suffering. Whether you follow Jesus or not, life's not easy. But if you follow Jesus, 
then pain and frustration and loss are often the greatest opportunities in life for you to grow. As much as I hate to say it, the times I have grown most in my life is when I'm going through something I really don't want to be going through. And so often as we face the hard stuff, what happens is, and this is what I've seen in myself again and again, we are liberated from our attachments, from our, our false gods and idols, from things that we have previously clung to for life. We have these things in our life where we're like, I have to have this to be happy. If I'm going to be happy and I'm going to thrive as a person, my life has to go this way. I have to have this job. I have to be married to this person. I have to have this thing going this way. I have to have this thing going this way. And suffering comes and it rips all of that away and it, and, and it teaches us something new. It strips all of that away. So, so if your criterion for a good life is feeling happy and feeling safe and feeling in control and having everything go the way that you want it to go, a season where things don't go the way that you want, they can wreck you. But if your criterion is for a good life is, I want to be with Jesus. I want to learn to be with Jesus. I want to learn to become like him. And I want to learn to do what he did or do what he would do if he were me. You guys, if that is your life goal, your circumstances are powerless to stop you. Often, difficult circumstances actually accelerate the process. So what I'm seeing in all of this, what I'm saying in all of this is that we're not static, we're dynamic. We are always being formed. And here's the beauty of this. You are not yet who you will be. And neither am I. And some of you are like, thank God. <laughs> this past year, um, our family started watching The Chosen. And um, you're, you guys are like, some of you are like, you just started watching it. Like, yeah, we're late to the party. But it is so well done. And it's, it's one of the things that I love that you just sort of pick up on as you watch is the disciples are just, they're always confused. <laughs> right? They're, you know, they, you see this, Jesus isn't present, but they're all huddled together. And they're like, what's Jesus doing? Like, where's this all going? And what's beautiful about that is I think that we can all relate to that. Jesus, what, what are you doing in my life? Jesus, where is this all going? And a few years ago, I, I realized there's actually a great biblical answer to that. You know, while, while the details may not be con concrete, where Jesus is taking me is not a secret at all. Um, Paul, Paul explains it this way. He writes these famous words. He says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What's Jesus doing in my life? Where is Jesus leading me? Will I have to suffer and face hard stuff? For sure. For sure, at some point. Okay, but this is where Jesus is leading me. If I get on the journey with Jesus, where's it going, Jesus? It's going, Jesus says, it's going to love and joy and peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And how does that happen? Well, I remain in Jesus, 
and he remains in me, giving me life. And the Father continually prunes out dead stuff in me, and he takes the good stuff and he reshapes it until in the end, something ordinary has become extraordinary. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. It's a choice that we make moment by moment, day by day. And it's not an attempt to get Jesus to love us. It's a response to the reality that he already does. Father in heaven, I think about the reality of how much transformation happens when we just consistently remain in Jesus and we keep showing up and we just keep showing up and we have two steps forward and one back and three steps forward and two back and the whole deal. And I pray for anybody who is, who is here today that is just feeling like, I don't think I'm a very good Christian. I don't think I ever could be. Maybe something went on this week. Maybe something went on last night. But Jesus, your love never changes and your invitation never changes. Remain in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. Would you help us to think about our lives and think about the places where the different factors are influencing us? How can we index that stuff toward life with you and bearing fruit? Jesus, would you, would you give us insight? Would you give us wisdom? And would you just help us make small changes that lead to really big things over time? Because we can't just make big changes. We don't have the strength, we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the resources, but we can make the small changes. And you meet us in that, and you do extraordinary things. God, we all in this room are just, we're just ordinary water, but you, you promised to turn us into something extraordinary. And I pray that you would. Amen.